Hello there everyone, this is Dan Figel here again with Tech Emergence where we bring you to the intersection of technology and psychology. Uh, and though we've talked a good deal about neuroscience as of late, uh, we haven't as much directly tied it to transhumanism in the last few months. And today, the game plan is to do just that. I'm lucky enough to have Nayef Al-Rodan on the line with me right now. Nayef is a philosopher, neuroscientist, geostrategist, and author. He's an honorary fellow of St. Anthony's College at Oxford University, as well as senior fellow and center director of geopolitics and global futures program at the Geneva Center for Security Policy, which is a, another interview in and of itself. We're excited to have Nayef on the line. Nayef, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Dan. Indeed. Glad to have you here. I, I, uh, I wanted to go in first into your notion of inevitable transhumanism, a, a term that you've used, I believe, in a, in a number of, of articles. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken with some folks who are maybe more optimistic, some folks that are more pessimistic around sort of the real transitions beyond our present human potential, our present mental capacities. Um, why do you use the term inevitable transhumanism? Well, um, most thinkers, whether political, philosophical, or otherwise, throughout human history, have started out with a very specific view of human nature, you know, all the way from Aristotle to Hobbes to John Locke. Yep. To, to me. And my view of human nature actually is the foundation of my outlook. So to me, man uh, is an emotional, amoral egoist. Uh, we are far more emotional than we think we are. We are amoral at best. What I mean by amoral is we're not immoral, but we're not necessarily moral. Yep. Uh, and egoism, which is collective self-interest, is what drives it. So it turns out that our moral compass is governed primarily by our perceived emotional self-interest. And the perception bit is just as important as reality, because sometimes we sabotage our very own interest because of a false perception. Indeed. So, so the starting, um, the kickoff, if you like, idea is that man, to me, is an emotional, amoral egoist. Um, and that uh, our moral compass is malleable. The only thing that's not malleable and this is a, a concept that I talked about previously, which I call predisposed tabula rasa. Hmm. Some of your listeners may understand yep. tabula yep. rasa being a clean slate, Blank slate. which yep. is a John Locke uh, idea that we are born innately uh, uh, clean or clear of any influences. And I, I sort of challenged that a few years ago, and I called it predisposed tabula rasa. And what I mean by that is we have an inbuilt, if you like, biological microchip that is pro-survival. So when survival is at stake, all bets are off. So the most moral and sensible creature out there will, uh, will not behave as we predict. So anarchy, uh, fear, insecurity will throw off all of our moral boundaries. So this is the foundational idea that I think once we understand that, then we, we probably make um, some sensible, semi-intelligent uh, um, uh, suppositions about what's coming. Now, the Neuro P5 you mentioned yes. is also something I, I came up with, and that is what motivates us for the most part, as with five words and five actions that start with the, word, with the letter P, power, first and foremost, pride, profit, pleasure, and permanency. So permanency uh, is longevity, is what I mean by permanence. Yes. Uh, and it is ironic that our very human nature, 
which I've just talked about from a neuroscientific perspective, is what will drive us to change our human nature. Thus, it is, I think it is very, very difficult uh, to, to withstand the pressures of wanting more power, more pride, more profit, more pleasure, more permanency. And so in the inevitable word in transhumanism, um, uh, I think is a must. We will, no matter what happens, we will pursue these enhancements. And of course, for your listeners who may not know what transhumanism is, it's really, it is enhancement of physiological function in the human body beyond normal physiology. In other words, you're not repairing a dysfunctional organ or a bunch of cells. You're actually enhancing it beyond what nature has designed. Yep. Uh, and physical enhancement, of course, is, has been with us for a long, long time. You know, whether it's wearing uh, reading glasses, whether it's putting a pacemaker, whether it's changing your knees or hips, yep. or even makeup. That's, that's all physical enhancements. And that doesn't worry me too much. Uh, from an ethical and moral philosophical standpoint. Me neither, yeah. Certainly most is really the, the cognitive enhancement, which is, um, you know, as you know, what defines us is not really our physique, but our neuronal populations, our really our brain. Yep. And if we, if we mess with that, which we will, uh, then it, we, we will change what it means to be human. Uh, and that has all kinds of, not only ethical, equality, health, uh, but also geopolitical uh, and moral uh, and existential implications for humanity. It, it, I think I'll stop here to see where, if you want to jump in. No, in, indeed, indeed. Um, I, I, uh, I agree. I think that for, for me, kind of cognitive enhancement, cognitive liberty, I think the, the transition beyond ourselves in terms of our emotive capacity, our intelligence, our ability to feel, to relate, to experience senses and cognitions beyond those that we're, we're presently capable of, I think that that's, that's uh, you know, about as, about as grand um, a transition as, as there could be in terms of ethical gravity of what we might do as man on Earth. I think that that's pretty high up there. Uh, for me, it, it, it might be numero uno. Um, it, now, it, so from your, from your perspective, again, these, the, the five Ps there of, of sort of our primordial drives in terms of pleasure, power, permanency, etc., you believe that these, and, and, and I'm, I'm congenial with the notion, I've actually written on a similar topic, never called it the five Ps or, or referred to it in the same way, but I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like the idea. Um, you see these as, as being a driving force in terms of bringing us beyond ourselves mentally, cognitively. Um, in, in, in terms of where you see those five Ps clearly kind of tugging us um, into adopting new tr new technologies today. Never mind, you know, when we finally get the brain chip to double our intelligence or or uh, only experience gradients of bliss and never experience negative. You know, before we we seriously tinker with what's upstairs, where are you seeing even at present in terms of just obvious examples um, these five Ps tugging us forward to technological adoption today? Well. Um there are all kinds of things that we're already doing that are uh, um, pushing us towards the cognitive enhancement. And, uh, I mean, again, my concern is deeply uh, um, uh, influenced by moral and ethical and existential outlook. Synthetic biology, for example. Now, some, just to, just to 
put some nomenclature on the table. Yep. Synthetic biology is different from biotechnology in that synthetic biology is our ability to synthesize bits of DNA and protein that do not exist in nature. Uh, unlike biotechnology where you play with existing um, biological entities. Yep. And so synthetic biology is taking off in a major way and it's really the marriage between synthetic biology uh, artificial intelligence, nanomaterial, material science, uh, and artificial intelligence that's enabling us to do some very fancy things and very troubling things. I mean, you, you probably, you and most of your readers must have uh, read something recently uh, in the UK, for example, the approval of a three-parent embryo. Yeah. And the idea is really, uh, that's from a bioethical standpoint, uh, was, was approved in a... Yep. In a an accountable society like the UK, which is wonderful from a scientific standpoint. From an ethical standpoint, where do we put the boundary? I mean, again, with all of my precautionary uh, uh, ideas, I am not for stifling innovation. I mean, I think innovation is, is central to our future as, as a species and will be pivotal to our prosperity, security, stability. But there are clear risks, and which we, so we want to encourage uh, innovation while mitigating risk. Now that's easier said than done. For sure. Uh, it will require uh, uh, at the state level, at the transnational level, at the individual level, like you and I, concerned citizens who are uh, enlightened and who care beyond, uh, and corporate entities, by the way, are the, uh, are the last people we would expect to want to be regulated because they care about the bottom line. Of course. Uh, and so while I'm sure there are a lot of responsible people in corporate entities, uh, that's not their motivation. That's not what they're trained to do. Um, the idea of, of editing and gene genomes, we do that. Uh, in China, it's a, it's a huge uh, enterprise, a lot of money being spent on it. And, and some of it may not be so obvious. I mean, in other words, in, in less uh, transparent um, geographic entities, there may not be the correct bioethical oversight that we would require. Uh, and if the thing gets out of hand, then we have a problem, I think, from an ethical and moral standpoint. From a, a practical existential standpoint, one of the side effects of this, if you get a piece of DNA that pollutes the biosphere, then who knows what kind of mutation that may produce in itself on its own spontaneously or in, when it merges with another piece of DNA in an animal or an insect or, yeah. or, or even a virus. So I think there are some clear uh, existential uh, implications on top of the usual moral and ethical uh, issues. Now, do you see uh, any of those five P factors previously referred to as, and you know, it would seem as though we could make the connection in some way even if we, we just wanted to, uh, in, as, as one of the driving forces of that three-parent embryo uh, transition, that being approved, do, do you see one or, or many of those forces being um, sort of behind that adoption and or other technological adoptions? Well, even if it's just simple stuff like cell phones or whatever the case may be, I'm interested in how you see those five Ps being kind of that, that toe line pulling us through the desire to kind of adopt, adopt technologies. To my mind, all of them are active in every bit of enterprise, uh, uh, with different degrees. I'm of congenial course. with that. Yep. So I think they're all they're all in there. They're all, and our emotions, 
that's another topic we may not have time for. Yeah. Uh, the idea of emotions uh, being a separate entity from our rational beings is a misnomer. Uh, it turns out, actually, from a lot of very good research, that our emotions are part and parcel of the most rational decisions we think we make. Uh, so it, it is, we are a complex entity, and our emotions, rather than being this, this, this news, so this kind of uh, uh, this burden that we is primordially residual that we need to get rid of, is not true. And it turns out actually the most sensible, rational decisions have to have some emotional, as long as it's the positive emotional aspect. So I think with the three-parent uh, baby, there are all kinds of things are at play. Uh, pride of a, a fully functional baby as opposed to someone with disability. Power and then having you, your progeny is an extension of you. Profit, well, that may not translate, may not be so obvious. Pleasure, of course, you want a healthy, yeah, vibrant. Yeah. No, so. no, that makes sense. And permanency, well, that's your longevity through your progeny. Yep. But that applies to every aspect of, of our um, ambitions. In, indeed, yeah. I, 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 the, the notion that I've hearkened to is that it seems as though our, our human ideals will sort of pull us beyond human um, because our, our ideals aren't inherently married to them. Our, our ideals are beyond us. Our, our desires are, are beyond us, and, and they're, they're, uh, they're more married to their fulfillment and extension than they are married to our present social state, our present physical state, our present mental state. And, and I, I, uh, the lens that you're articulating is, is similar in some ways and, and I find interesting. Um, my, my last question, Nayef, is uh, with respect to, to transhuman technologies and the real considerations that are, are to be had ahead, you, you and I uh, share this, this notion that um, cognitive enhancement is, is likely to be really of the grandest ethical import and, and potentially the most dangerous, potentially the most liberating, um, and, and in your perspective, to some degree, pretty darn inevitable here. Um, in, in the next decade ahead, and maybe we're thinking too short, but in the next decade ahead, when do you think, um, or, or what are what are the, the transhuman um, concerns and considerations that you think are really going to hit, you know, uh, land on the map of human life uh, in the coming decade ahead? I think right now, even with the, the brain-machine interface and deep brain stimulation and, and whatever other alterations and, and, and adjustments that we're making to ourselves... People don't feel like a bunch of transhumanists. Transhumans are are walking about. Um, in the coming decade, I predict that more of this will enter the political sphere, the 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 sphere of media. Uh, you know, there will be maybe more panic. There will maybe be more excitement. Um, what are the the transhuman concerns and considerations that that you see as becoming most prominent in the next decade ahead? I think the. the in the immediate future, which is the next decade, yes. uh, you will see uh, cognitive enhancement primarily through neuropharmacology, huh. uh, 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 neurostimulants, um, psychostimulants. Um, of course, the militaries have used them forever. Yes. You know, in, in Waterloo, brandy was the, the stimulant. And in the Navy, it's typically rum. Uh, and in Vietnam, it's amphetamines, and in more recent conflicts, it's modafinil, which is a very potent yep. stimulant. So I think we're, we're going to head uh, towards uh, cognitive enhancement through uh, increased um, mood modulation, mood modulation, um, more uh, cognitive ability within 
within the confines of our current neuronal population. As we get more ambitious within a decade, beyond a decade, I think we'll get into the brain-machine interface, we're going to get into implantable uh, microchips, whether they're primarily biological or biotechnological. But I, I think the immediate concern, uh, the FDA in the U.S. Is, is entrusted with keeping us all uh, on the right path, is really the, the, the idea of neuronal, uh, neuro, what we call neuromodulation. Um, again, in the military, there are some efforts to make patients, uh, to, to make uh, soldiers uh, less, other than the idea of the primary one, which is requiring less sleep, that they are less emotional, less remorseful about uh, huh. uh, about uh, violent acts. And of course, the difficulty is when they come home uh, from those conflicts, they're all messed up. They're messed up for all kinds of reasons. One is really the severe brutality they, they pass through and fear, their own primordial fears. And secondly, some of the agents they're given uh, actually makes them sort of junkies, makes them addicts to certain things. Now, there are, I mean, in all militaries, there are accountable, transparent oversight mechanisms. I don't want to be too critical. But, but, the, but the point is uh, that psychostimulants and, and neuromodulators of, of all kinds of, whether we play with dopamine, with, with serotonin, uh, with, with the endorphin family, um, that will make us very, feel very good, uh, but it's very dangerous. Because it, to maintain it, you require a great deal of, uh, of addictive behavior. Uh, so I think I think the first decade I, I'm not worried about brain machine interface although I think it's it's making significant uh, sure. strides. Yep. It's really it's really the neuropharmacology and and thus the need to have very strict oversight mechanisms. And and do you believe that um, through just the concerns of neuropharmacology uh, alone maybe or or some of the other technologies as well? will be able to put in place the national or even international um, structures for managing new and emerging technologies and sort of mitigating those risks as they come along. Do you think that that might start to evolve some of those structures and processes that, that maybe we don't have now um, and that maybe that'll help us for when the bigger game comes along with BMI and artificial intelligence and things like that? Do you think the, the, the current, you know, the, the neural enhancement in the pharmacological sense um, might, you know, if we do it right, uh, prep us to deal with the big game? Or, or do you see us just kind of getting a crutch to deal with that and then having to deal with BMI as another entire wave and maybe not preparing ourselves adequately? Well, very good question. And, I, I, and the issue, the primary issue is that our regulation is way behind innovation. Of course. Uh, and as I said earlier, we don't want to do anything to limit or stifle innovation. That's good for all of us. Um, the regulatory frameworks are, uh, are lacking in a major way uh, for a number of reasons. One is they are politically not on the front burner. Politicians, as you know, uh, they're amoral creatures like the rest of our species. <laughs> they are, but they are concerned with very specific cyclical electioneering uh, enterprises. Yes. And, and so their long-term uh, outlook is very limited. Uh, number one. Number two, the other significant player in this are corporate pharmaceutical entities, and they are actually not as well regulated as most people think, and their concern is really the bottom line. I think, I'm sure, 
again, I don't want to be too cynical or too critical. Yeah, they're good people. It's just they're in a circumstance where they have concerns. You, 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 don't, you don't want to fire 300 people if you can help it. You know, you don't want to lose your job. It's just kind of part of the environment, I guess. Exactly. And their, their role to be responsible executive is to make as much profit as possible, of course, within the confines of rules and regulations. Yeah. But they're not too concerned about ethical, moral, existential oversight mechanisms. That's the role of governments. And it's the role of governments in accountable, liberal, democratic societies, first and foremost. Uh, and then go beyond that transnationally. But I think if we start with place like the U.S., like Japan, like uh, some European countries where they have accountable mechanisms for, for society in general uh, and, and take the lead for that. I mean, that doesn't uh, guarantee that others won't do it elsewhere yeah, yeah. in a dysfunctional way. But at least we would provide an example, as, we, as you alluded to, we have a decade or so to get our act together before the big stuff starts kicking in. Yeah, and I, I suppose I'll cross our fingers that, uh, that, that, that we'll be able to do just that, although I can't say exactly what getting our act together uh, would look like in its, in its entirety. Uh, my, my deep hope is that the proliferated conversations about what that might be and the chipping away at, at what that might be will hopefully get us there uh, a little bit more effectively than just uh, waiting for tragedies. So uh, on that note, and I have a I really wanted to say thanks so much for, for being here for the interview here with Tech Emergence. If people want to learn more about yourself, your work, um, your ideas on the transitions of transhumanism, as well as global policy, which we haven't even gotten to dive into, and by golly, I think might have to be another interview at some point. But if folks want to learn more from you, where would they go on the web to find you? Well, I think you can Google my name uh, or sustainablehistory.com, which is really where my personal website, sustainablehistory.com, one word, uh, which has all of my ideas, articles, books. Uh, it all should be there. Fantastic. All right. Thank you again so much for taking the time here on Tech Emergence, Nayo. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>